Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this service, we hope to see you this Sunday at either 8.45 a.m. for our praise and worship service or 11 a.m. for our traditional service. Now, here's this week's message. So good morning. I'm excited to be here with you this morning as we start our new campaign, our new kind of thing we're going to do together as a church called Do For One, which you wish you could do for everyone. While that quote is not unique to me, uh, it's from Andy Stanley. It's something that's radically helped me and helped me navigate all the different challenges we face when we're trying to do good things or kind things for others. I introduced it about a month and a half ago when we were going over compassion, when we were talking about that belief that we should be compassionate to people in needs. And that idea of do for one, well, it really challenges our thinking, because maybe you, well, at least for me, when I was in school, if I was caught with a piece of gum, what would my teacher ask me? All right, do you have enough for everyone? So your teacher asks you the same thing. I wonder if they teach that in teaching school. It's just something they say. So I said, do you have enough for everyone? I said, of course I don't have enough for everyone. They said, well, spit it out because you, if you don't have enough for everyone, then you can't have it yourself. Well, our teachers were trying to teach us to think of others and, you know, be kind, things of that nature. That idea, having enough for everyone, may work for a small group of people. But when you get older and you realize the needs of the world, well, that idea no longer works. Because if we start using that and we start thinking like, well, if I have to do it for them, then I have to do it, well, for everyone else. Or if I, if I help this one person with their need, what if somebody else asks me for their need? Well, if I help this one person who's sick or this one person who needs money, if I do it for them, am I supposed to then do it for everybody? I, I don't know about you, but that can cause me to get overwhelmed. And then I end up doing what? Right, Nothing. It can freeze you thinking, well, it's just not fair, and life's supposed to be fair. I don't know where we get that idea from, but, but that kind of just plagues us, and so we end up not doing anything. But when Jesus tells us to love others, he tells it through the story of one person helping one person. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Someone was lying, beaten, half dead on the side of the road. The Good Samaritan finally came along. He didn't stop and say, is it fair to help him? What about everybody else who's hurting? Well, if I help this person, do I got to travel the next road to find... No, he just simply met the needs, helped the person that was in need. And so when Jesus tells us to love, he communicates that we can just do that individually with other individuals. You see, Jesus doesn't ask you and I to save the world because he's already done that. So instead of being overwhelmed by all the needs, if we just take the posture or we have the attitude, well, I'll just do for one, what I wish I could do for all, not worrying about things being fair, not worrying about all the different needs, just help the people and respond as Christ has asked us to. But you see, we're not the first people to get overwhelmed with good deeds. Look what Paul says in Galatians 6, 9. He says this. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. Paul says, do not grow weary, do not lose heart, do not despair. Like we said, sometimes doing good can be very overwhelming with all the needs. But in other times, and I don't know about you, but maybe you've done some nice things and you wonder, well, am I, am I making a difference? Does anybody even notice what I'm doing? I mean, I'm sacrificing all my time, all my effort. I'm volunteering. And, and is anybody even noticing or is it really helping people? So we all wonder. Paul says, yeah, don't, don't be weary. Don't lose heart when doing good. He says, for at the proper time, 
We will reap, harv- reap a harvest if we do not give up. And so Paul says, listen, when you're doing good things, just keep doing good things. Because at the proper time, which is this God time, we will reap a harvest. And here's what his point is. He's saying, if you're doing good things, God will intervene. That's what this whole idea of this proper time, this God time. God will show up, and you will reap a harvest much bigger than you would have thought. Meaning it's our job to plant and to water, but it's God's job to grow, to use the agricultural metaphor. How many of us can make things grow? None of us can. We can help them grow. We can aid them. That's the idea. So Paul says, listen, it's not your duty to make things grow. God will take care of that. You just keep doing good things, and God will take care of the rest. He says this, therefore, as we have an opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so as a church, as a staff, and as an outreach team, we took Paul up on this. He says, as you have an opportunity, to, we started looking for opportunities. We started asking questions and looking around the community saying, hey, what are the needs? What are some places we can get involved right here locally in Conway? And we're very excited about what we found, but... Before we get there, maybe when you see Paul say, let us do good works, you ever wondered what good works are? See, Paul says, let us do good. What does do good mean? What happens when I think something is good, but somebody else says it's not good? Is it still good? I don't know if you've turned on the news recently, but I think people are arguing over what's good all the time, aren't they? One person says something's good, the other person says, no, this is good. Everybody's arguing for good, but who is right because they're contradicting, or, or even worse, for the Christian, for the, for the person who believes in, in God's word. What happens when someone says something is good, but it opposes God's word? Is it still good? I, I know you don't have time to sit around in the office and think about good, right? Have this philosophical discussion with yourself about good, but I do. So we're going to talk about that this morning. That's what I get paid to do. And so I need you just for a minute to put your learning cap on as we talk about good and what Paul means, because who even defines this stuff? So as a noun, all right, you with me? Put your learning cap on for just five to 30 minutes, okay? Good as a noun. Good as a noun means that which is morally right or righteousness. Who defines that, I wonder? Or another usage as a noun means it can mean benefit or advantage. So when we're using good as a noun, it can mean morally or righteous, or it can mean benefit or advantage. Or when we're using good as an adjective, it can mean to be desire or approve of, or it can mean possessing or displaying a moral virtue. For simplicity, here's what I'm getting at. The word good, or the idea of good, when we say good, it comes across in two different ways. One usage is for non-moral issues, non-ethical things. And the second is for moral and ethical issues. You see, moral and ethics speak to our behavior. They're guiding principles that tell us what's right and wrong. And so here's my point for non-moral usage. I'm, I'm wrapping this section up. For non-moral usage, non-ethical usage, the Bible writers call things good or useful or helpful just like you and I do. For example, when Jesus says salt is good, 
He's using it just like we would. He's saying it's useful, it's helpful. He's not making a moral statement about salt, right? That's, that's not what he's doing. He's just saying salt is good. However, when Paul says, let us do good to all people, he is specifically talking about ethics here. He's talking about our guiding principles. This idea of good isn't just general thing. It's something much deeper. As J.I. Packer explains the quotes up here, he says, but the biblical concept of moral and spiritual good is thoroughly theological and stands in sharp contrast with the anthropocentric view of goodness, goodness developed by the Greeks and later thinking in the Greek tradition. Now, most of us don't use this word anthropocentric, do we? Y'all use that in a sentence this week? Yeah, probably not. It's okay. Here's what that means. It's a worldview that considers human beings as the most significant entity in the universe. Right? And so you say, well, who would believe that? Well, if someone doesn't believe in God, what else would be the most significant thing? Right? It makes sense. So their worldview is saying human beings are the most significant. A theocentric worldview, which is the biblical worldview, says God is the central and ultimate concern. So one view says man is the most important thing. The other says God is the most important thing. And so Packer is saying the biblical worldview of good, of spiritual good and moral good, is based on God being the central focus in life because he is the supreme being. But when man is the supreme being, it's very different. Because if God is the supreme being... Who gets to define good? God. If man is the supreme being, who gets to define good? Them. Because now good becomes subjective. Now good is based on everybody's opinion. Now good's based on what I think is right and then what you think is right. And we all have our own ideas, hence kind of what we're dealing with today. When the Bible writers are speaking of good. It's established in something very specific. And if we haven't been taught this, we've probably missed it. It's very important to understand when they say do good, they mean something very specific by it. That's why Jesus says this, and maybe you've had trouble with this verse in the past. Look at this. It's Mark 10, 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good. What's the next part? Except God alone. Scholar James Edwards says, It is helpful to recall that in Judaism, only God is character, characteristically called good. Rabbis welcomed any number of titles, but only rarely, rarely was rabbi addressed as a good teacher for fear of blasphemy against God, who is alone good. So to them, to Judaism, only God is good. He is the supreme example of goodness. And because God is the supreme example of goodness, because he is good, that means everything he does is good. No matter what he does, it will be good, because who defines good? So if God defines it and God does it and calls it good, is it good? Yeah, right. You with me? 
Yeah, I know it'll get better. It'll get better. Just stay with me here for a minute. You see, goodness isn't an idea or something that each of us get to define. Goodness for the Christian is based on God. Scholar Chad Brad says, in contrast to the Greek view of the good as an ideal, the biblical concept focuses on concrete experiences of what God has done and is doing in the life of his people. So, when we're talking about good works, how do we then know what a good work is? If you and I do not get to define it, if good isn't subjective, good is objective, and God is being good and what God is doing is good, how do we know that what we're doing is actually good? How do we know? Just because I call it doesn't make it good if God's the one who defines it. And as a church, this is extremely important because we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We are his representatives on this earth. And if we're going to do something in his name, on his behalf, we better make sure he thinks it's actually good. Wouldn't you agree? So luckily for us, the scholar J.I. Packer helps us with this. He gives us three filters our works have to pass through in order for them to be good. So what makes a good work good? That's what we're talking about. Say it with me. What makes a good work good? Right, you're going to say, I don't know what we talked about. It wasn't good, but he talked about good. I don't know, something like that. So just like a coffee filter, the water trickles through, and then you throw away the waste, you throw away the things. These filters, these three things will help us trickle through all the works, all the things we want to do to make sure that at the end we can actually call them good. So let's dive in. The first one's very obvious. You're going to love it. He says, a good work is good when it is in accordance with the right standard. What's that standard? Answers on the screen. The Bible. Check this out. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every, there's our word, good work. You see, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it teaches us, you and I, how to actually use the Bible. Many of us have never been trained or maybe we've never even thought about it. But the point of it, Paul tells us right here, here's what the Bible will do. Here's what it's useful for. Here's what you and I can expect to get from it. First, teaching which it's the source of Christian doctrine, what we believe. Second, rebuking, meaning it's going to rebuke us. We're going to have some wrong ideas sometimes, and the Bible's going to have to fix that. Third, training in righteousness, meaning it trains us how to live a moral and upright life, a righteous life for God. But the goal of the teaching, rebuking, and training is so that we are equipped. We are prepared. And what is, what is the Bible preparing us for? Well, it's right there. For every good work. So the point of Scripture is so you and I can prepare to do the things that God actually wants us to do. Thomas Leah says, If Timothy would nurture his spiritual life in the Scriptures that he would use in his ministry, he would be fully qualified and prepared to undertake whatever task God put before him. He says, What a tragedy for any Christian to be labeled as spiritually unprepared for a task when the means of instruction and preparation are readily at hand. How do you and I become prepared to do what God's asked us to do? The scriptures. It gets us ready. 
It trains us. It speaks to us. It teaches us. So if you're like, hey, I, I know God's calling me or I want God to move and, and, and I, I'm ready for him to do something in my life. I mean, I really want to do this God thing. Like, I am all on board. It starts with this. He'll prepare you. He'll teach you. So the scriptures prepare us to accomplish the God's work. So the standard for good works being good was the Bible. But second, a good work is good when it's from the right motive. What's, what, what should be our motive for doing good works? It's on the screen. The gospel. And this is where it can be kind of gut-wrenching. This is when it can be kind of hard. Because a motive is, speaks to the reason why we do things. Is the reason why we do things for self-promotion? Is the reason why we do things to make us feel better? Is the reason why we do things because nobody else will do them? I've heard that once or twice at church, right? What is the reason you're doing things? It should be the gospel. We're going to jump into, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to uh, Titus chapter 2. This is the passage we're going to camp on for a little bit. We're going to jump right into the middle of Paul's letter to Titus. Titus, uh, Titus is told at the beginning to continue the missionary efforts that Paul has already started. He explains to them that they must refute false teachers, and these teachers are causing massive problems in the local church. And he goes on to tell them that these teachers and these people who are acting this certain way, you can read this in Titus chapter 1, he says they are unprofitable for anything good. So he ends with these people, they're unprofitable for anything good, and then he launches in what good looks like for a church. And he hits every age, he tells all sorts of people, an entire household, what they need to do in order to do these good things. He says, if these people are unprofitable for doing good, here's the good you need to do. And then he brings it back to the gospel. I just want to show you that. He brings it back and reminds them, listen, I know this stuff's hard. I know this isn't easy. But look what he says in Titus 2.11. He says, for, that's connecting everything else he just said, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Stop right there. In this one sentence, we see both the atonement and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is whom? Remember, 85% of the time in church, the answer is going to be Jesus, right? So the grace of God here is whom? Jesus, the grace of God has appeared and then offers salvation. He has come as a baby. He's come as a human being. And then he offers salvation speaking of the cross. You see, God's grace, Paul says, has appeared. So what he's going to attach, I'm just telling you in advance so you can follow me, what he's going to attach this idea of us doing good works to is the grace of God. And he calls this grace God's saving grace. That God has acted on behalf of all people and did something they didn't deserve. You know that's grace, right? Grace is when you do something for someone and they don't deserve it. Is grace hard? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it, but you do it for them anyways. That's what grace. And so he starts off by gr grounding our ethics and our good works out of an awareness of God's grace. Him acting on our behalf, even though we didn't deserve it. And then he says this. He says something about the saving grace. He says it teaches us to say no to the ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the saving grace of God teaches us to say no to some things and yes to other things. And then he says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says this saving grace does something. This saving grace teaches us, but this saving grace also gives us hope. That just as he appeared once before, and in this present age we're saying yes to some things and no to other things, now we're waiting this hope because we believe he's going to appear again. And in this, he empowers us, Paul's about to explain how, to live a godly life. Look at what he says. He says, who, this is Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. So this saving grace, he's reminding us, because when you think about good works, right, we can get weary, we can get tired, well, they haven't earned it. He's like, no, no, no. Remember the grace of God? That he has, he has redeemed us and purified us. In other words, this saving grace isn't cheap. Christ wasn't a circumstance, wasn't a, um, excuse me, he wasn't a victim of his circumstances. Christ gave himself for you and I. He was proactive, just like we should be on the cross. Jesus redeemed us and purifies us. And it's because of the cross, you and I can now do good works. You see, there was a passage of scripture that's always confused me. It's found in Romans. Paul says that nobody does good. Y'all ever read that before? And I've always wondered, Paul, why, why are you saying no one can do good? Well, he's quoting this psalm. Look at this. It says, the fool says in his heart, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there is any who understands, any who seeks God. All have turned away, all have been, become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So the backdrop of the Old Testament, the backdrop of Paul saying that no one does good. People without God, they can't do good. They don't know good. Why? Because God is good. And so if you don't know, good, if you don't know God and he's good, how can you do good? Does that make sense? No? Yes? Yeah, okay, we'll keep going. Now, look at this. Paul says, I mean, and Psalmist says no one can do good. But then Paul says, while we wait for the blessing, hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so when you take these two ideas that without God, you can't do anything. You need God to act. You need God to redeem. And that's why Paul says, yeah, he's redeemed you. He's purified you. And now that he's redeemed you, now that he's purified you, now you should be eager to do good works. You see, sin has separated us from God. Without God, we cannot do good because God defines it. And we're not with him if we don't know him. So in other words, we're incapable of doing it, but now because of Jesus, we can do good. And Paul ends it with eager to do what is good. You see, God's saving grace, the saving grace he's talking about, should motivate us to do good. It's God's grace that should cause you and I to be eager 
or zealous for good things. That is, we are joining with the God of this world on his mission to save the world. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel isn't just about you dying and going to heaven. The gospel is about you being saved from sin, but being saved for the purposes of God. You say, Brian, what what are you talking about? Well, listen, the saving grace of God should cause you to be eager, excited, and motivated to do things like forgive when they don't deserve it. Or give when they haven't earned it. Or serve when they're not thankful and grateful that you're there. Or show love to people who are extremely mean and angry. You see, we are called to do those things, those good works. And it's the gospel that motivates us. Because of what Christ has done, because he gave us something we do not deserve, we then can do good works because he is the driving force. He empowers us to do that. The gospel, God's saving grace, has to be our motive. So what makes a good work good? Well, when the standard is the Bible, when the motive, the reason why we're doing it is because of the gospel. Whether it's because of what the gospel has done for us or what we need to tell people about the gospel, it should be about God's grace is our motive. And then number three, a good work is good when it is done with the right aim. And that's God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's a very simple idea. The idea is everything that we do, the good works that we do, we do them so God receives the praise and honor. And that is very hard for human beings to do, isn't it? If we were honest, don't we like to receive the praise and honor? Don't we like to be acknowledged? Don't we like people to be like, wow, look at them, they're awesome, they're amazing, look at that. That's the wrong aim. That's our glory. What makes a good work good is when we're doing it for the glory of God. So people point to him. So people praise him. So people say, man, what an amazing God you serve. So what makes a good work good? Well, when it's accordance with the scriptures, the Bible. When the motive is the gospel, not our gain, not our selfishness, but the gospel, telling people about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, And then third, when the aim is so God gets the glory, so more people come and praise and honor and worship him. Imagine what we could do. Imagine what good we could do if that was our filter. Imagine if everything we did in our marriages had to go through that filter. Could you do that? Could you go, well, is this biblical? Am I treating my... Why for my husband biblically? Am I forgiving? Am I loving? Well, that's about two things, right? Forgiveness, am I forgiving? Let's stay. Am I forgiving? And then what if we said, well, okay, it is. Well, what, am, am I doing things that are grace or have, do they have to earn something? How many of us tell our spouses they have to earn our love or they have to earn our good works? What if we did them out of grace? And then what if we did them so God got the glory? 
What if every conversation at work was like this? What if every post on social media went through these filters? I mean, the what ifs are endless. What if this was our filter? Is God getting the glory? Is this advancing the gospel? And is this in accordance with the Bible? With that in mind, Paul says this, let us not become weary in good, doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So with all that in mind, we're going to do some good things. I just needed you to know what good was so you understand what a good work is. Because we talk about it as a pastor. I can't tell you how many people come to us saying, hey, we need to do some good. Here's what we need to do. These are our filters. This is what everything must trickle down through as a church. And the three things we're going to do, we're going to give, we're going to serve, and we're going to love. We're going to talk about these for the next three weeks. We're going to give to Fostering Hope. We're going to serve Conway Elementary School. And we're going to love the Conway City Police Department. We have a ton of different opportunities and a ton of different things planned out for 2020. But a heads up, I need to give you for next week. Next week, we're going to take up a special offering for Fostering Hope. We did the toy drive, and that's amazing, but we're also going to take up a, uh, a special gift for them. This is going to be above our normal tithes and offerings. So we're going to take our normal tithes and offerings that go to the church. Then at the end of the service, we're going to take up a special offering that 100% of the money will go to them. They have a lot of needs. We'll talk about that next week, and I hope you can join us for that. But we want to generously support them and what they're doing in our community. And so this week, I just ask you to seek God. I ask you to start praying. I ask you to start saying, okay, God, how do you want me to get involved? Because we believe God is leading us to serve in those three areas as a church. Which means if you're part of the church, we believe he's calling you to be a part of that. That's to give, to serve, and to love. And so will you just ask God how you can help? Because maybe you can't help every foster family. But perhaps you can do for one what you wish you could do for all. Perhaps you can't serve every elementary student and every teacher. But perhaps you could do for one what you wish you could do for all. And perhaps you can't show love to all Conway City Police Department. But maybe you could do for one what you wish you could do for all of them. And individually, as we go out doing these things for God's glory, collectively, our church will make a great impact for the kingdom of God. We truly believe that. So will you be praying about that this week? Be thinking about that? And this week, as we come to the Lord's table, I want you to just think about God's saving grace. The whole sermon's been wrapped up in this idea of God saving us for good works. Is your motive in life the gospel? Is what compels you to do good the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection for a new life for you? When that grace motivates us, we'll do these different things that seem so hard and difficult in the Bible, like forgiving and loving and turning the other cheek, all those things. But grace must grab hold of our hearts.